Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, healers. It's Allison here. So I want to tell you a little bit more about how Taylor and I got started with our podcast and The platform we've been using, which is Anchor, has been so user-friendly and so amazing. I just want to tell anyone else out there that is thinking about starting a podcast, Anchor is the way to go. First of all, it's completely free, so hello. Second of all, there's so many creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. It's crazy. I'm recording this right from my phone, and it literally just looks like the record button on your videos or your Instagram. So... It really is such a user-friendly platform, and the coolest thing is, is you can add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes, too, and the possibilities are seriously endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never even seen before. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so many other platforms, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And like I said, it's so user-friendly. I recommend Anchor. Go to anchor.fm to get started or the Anchor app. See you later, healers. Hi, I'm Allison. And I'm Taylor. And together, we're the Anxiety Chicks. Each week, we will dive deep into a different topic about anxiety and the real-life experiences we all go through, while giving you all the top tools and tips you need for your journey to recovery. Our degrees may say therapist and dietitian, but together we are just real chicks on our own healing journeys too. Join us as we take you from panic to power and reduce the stigma of mental health. Remember, you're never alone and we're all in this together. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anxiety Chicks podcast. I'm Allison Sepinera. And I'm Taylor. And we're so excited to be with you again this week. We had such a great episode last week. Taylor, we missed you. I hope everything's okay. I know you were having some travel problems. Yeah, no, Houston traffic is is not the best. <laughs> We were so, I was so excited for you to to talk to therapy Jeff with us because I is, know I was actually so upset. Yeah, he's just such a great, great guy and great clinician and just so relatable. And he's obviously a huge presence on TikTok and Instagram now. And we just talked so much about like gaslighting, what that is, like how to not gaslight yourself. You guys check out that episode if you haven't listened yet. It's 
it's one of my favorites so far, even though I missed you, Taylor, um, to talk. So we're, we're hopefully going to have him back. He has another, he has a great podcast too that hopefully maybe we'll be on at some point. Um, but yeah, take a listen. And today we have another special guest. I am so pumped about this too. <clears throat> we told you guys we were going to start getting more guests. You guys requested it. We wanted to bring in experts um, from all different parts of mental health, not just anxiety, but just mental health. And um, so many requests about this topic today, um, especially with relationships, um, uh, especially with what I have been going through the past three months and talked so much on my page about um, attachment theory and me being anxiously attached and what that looks like for me. I know it's different for little, for other people, <clears throat> but I this might be more relatable to me a little bit. I don't know, Taylor, for you, but I think it'll be so eye-opening for so many listeners um, to have someone really talk about the science behind anxious attachment and like what it looks like to actually have healthy attachment and what people that are anxiously attached can do to find healthy relationships. So without further ado, do-do-do-do, I'm going to introduce Jessica Baum, and her bio is fascinating, so you'll want to hear this. Okay. Jessica Baum is the owner and founder of the Be Self-Full Method and the Relationship Institute of Palm Beach. She has an undergraduate degree from Fordham University and holds a master's degree in mental health counseling from South University. As a certified substance abuse specialist, her focus is chemical abuse, codependency, and anxiety, which we know so much of anxiously attached people have trouble with codependency, so I love that. Jessica is also a certified, now, am I, tell me if I'm saying this right, imago therapist? Yes, Yes? you are. Perfect. Okay. Certified imago therapist. Using the imago approach, Jessica helps treat family systems and couples issues with an extensive knowledge on relationships. She also uses this approach in family programs she runs for treatment centers. Jessica has extensive training in psychodrama and experimental therapy. She is also skilled in cognitive therapy and dialectical behavior therapy. She is trained in EMDR therapy, amazing, I love EMDR, and post-induction therapy and has done a copious amount of work with trauma. Through Be Self Full, Jessica offers coaching services that support individuals and couples to form healthy, long-term relationships. Woo, I love that. Gosh. I'm so excited. Bio so long. (laughs) I said that first, and then I read it. I'm like, no, I need to read all this because this is all amazing. Um, But I'm glad because everyone needs to know kind of where you're from. And then, and and I. So why don't we start? Tell us a little bit. I know we got your journey just there a little bit, but tell us a little bit more um, about who you really work with and like how your experience with attachment theory, because I know there's so much science behind it, um, but how that kind of resonated with you and how you got into this place of working with couples and in attachment. Yeah. So I think, you know, I, when I was younger, I struggled with anxiety and depression and kind of identified that I struggled with codependency. And I think so many listeners probably hear that word and that word brings up so much. And sometimes it even brings up shame. And I read every single book on codependency I could get my hands on just to try to help myself. Um, As I went through undergrad and I started working in the addiction field, I started helping the family of addiction and I started working with codependency that way. And through my own personal experiences, as well as all kinds of aligns, um, 
I started working with couples and imago therapy means image and it's a type of couples counseling that really unpacks like the unconscious, subconscious core wounds that we play out kind of in our relational spaces. So I started a private practice and I started treating couples and I started to help couples, especially with the anxious avoidant dance, which we can talk about, really start to learn where their growth edge is and what they're projecting and how their core wounds, and you can call it trauma bonding, but I think we play out a lot of things in many relationships and some are easy to get through, some are hard to get through, but with help and a little bit of guidance, we can see what is ours to to heal and what is um, being recreated in the relationship and how can we kind of change the pattern and the dynamics. I love that. And so I would love for you for you to talk a little bit more like about what codependency really actually is, because I think um, I don't think there's enough information out there about like what it really is. I, I, I feel like it's very much a buzzword at this point, kind of like you're a narcissist, you know, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. you know, OK. You know what I mean? Um, can you kind of just, I guess, tell us a little bit more about what what that does mean? Sure. I mean, I, I struggle with the word codependency myself because my, like our culture kind of says, oh, you're codependent. So the the healing or the what you should be is independent, which is so far from the truth. And so when you're codependent, quote unquote, really what that means is that when you were a baby and that when you were younger and you adapted to survive, you became more attuned to your primary caregiver's needs, moods, feelings. So you did, you kind of left or self-abandoned and you, and you can kind of track the room and um, understand what's going on in your partner more than actually what's going on in you. And it's a little bit fear-based in the sense that the reason why you adapted is so that you can stay in connection. And some people call that the abandonment wound. People have different ways of looking at it. But what happens in relationship is one person usually becomes other focused. And that is an adaptive strategy that is used to stay in connection. And sometimes the other person becomes self-focused, which is also an adaptive strategy, which gets the narcissistic term. But um, they're all embedded patterns in our nervous system. And they're there to survive because our biological imperative is to stay in connection. So the ways you adapted when you were young that you're probably not even conscious of because they really have to do with your nervous system are the ways in which you will your behaviors and your strategies will show up in your romantic bonds when you're in a fear state or when you're in a sympathetic or fight flight freeze response. So it's not necessarily like like, like the reason why someone might have codependent tendencies in relationships when they're older. It sounds like you're not saying it's it's only because of like the dynamic between the caregiver and the child. There's also like is there something there's, also internally that, that's with someone when they're born? Um, well, there's epigenetics and genes and all of that, but it really comes down to co-regulation, which is like the energetic dance that you do with your primary caregiver. So if your primary caregiver is locked in a fear response or not available or for anxiously attached people and a lot of codependent people who fall in the same bracket, there's a sense of inconsistency. So sometimes your caregiver is there and sometimes your caregiver isn't there. And it's not your caregiver's fault. Most of the time they're doing the best they can in in their own form of survival. But that sense of inconsistency gets wired in your nervous system, your automatic nervous system. So even when you're in connection, there's a part of your amygdala and there's a part of your memory that's like, oh, when is the shoe going to drop? 
kind of feeling like this is too good to be true. And if the wind blows in the direction of abandonment and through neuroception, and we can talk about what neuroception is, but if you sense a sense of threat, like the disconnection is coming, um, an anxiously attached person or someone who's codependent might fawn or people please or self um, sacrifice or do whatever they can to make sure that the connection isn't broken because the sense of a broken connection is very painful. I, I have um, two questions. So one of them is, what about the parent that's like overly there for you? Can that also cause you to go that route? Yeah. So, you know, like a helicopter parent is also anxious. Yeah. So it, you know, and this is where attachment theory is really um, developmental layers and it's not quite as easy as a label, but two things can happen. I mean, if a person or a parent is overly there for you, they're actually anxious. So they're helicoptering and they could be smothering. So, you know, two things could happen. If they're overly there for you, but inconsistent, you could still show up more anxious. If they're overly there and just smothering, you could actually become avoidant because when someone is overly there for you or smothering in your relationship, you might want to pull away because that's a feeling of not feeling safe in your body. And it's a familiar feeling of I'm going to get consumed and engulfed. So it really depends on where they consistently over, over hovering and that I wouldn't say that's a true avoidant. That's an anxious person with an avoidant protection, meaning I can get really close in a relationship. But if that person becomes smothering in any way, I'm got, I have to move away from that because that felt experience is really too much for me to bear. So it's, what, it's complicated. Um, what about mirroring? Like say your parent is a certain type of way and you notice that like you mirror almost like how they are in the world. Yeah. I mean, and that's really normal because when we're born, we're not fully developed. We don't have a fully developed nervous system. We don't have a fully developed brain. And so we're connecting to our primary givers from our right hemisphere. So their paradigm and their world is is what builds our brain. So there's a lot of mirroring. And if there's good attunement, there's a seeing in, this is a separate being and an attunement, but there's a way in which a baby is building their brain and circuitry based on their primary caregiver's brain and circuitry. So those early formative years are actually really, really important. And I get so many clients that are like, oh, I had a great childhood. And it's like, you could have the best childhood in the world and your parent could have done the best job. But if they were locked in some anxiety or they were going through something as a baby, we are sensing beings and we are internalizing their world as part of our paradigm. And we are developing organs, literally our heart isn't fully developed, so many organs and the way in which we perceived connection, whether it's safe, the way in which we perceive relationships, whether there's safety there and we can depend or whether there's a threat there and we have to either run towards what we're scared of or run away from what we're scared of is what develops into kind of these attachment labels. Wow. So would you say that um, the... If you, I, I, again, I don't want to just say, yeah, everyone's anxiety looks different. Everyone, there is a theory of attachment theory and, and, um, you know, it all, everyone has different experiences, but would you say that one of maybe the biggest fears, I guess, for someone with anxious attachment is abandonment so that, so that when they're in that relationship, that anxiety is so wrapped up in being abandoned that that's why there's so much anxiety or is it, you know, other stuff? I don't know. I just thinking of myself and I can kind of see that. It's interesting because I think the subconscious awareness is abandonment. And I also feel like there's a fear of intimacy, even with anxiously attached people too. 
So if I can keep you really close to me, I don't have to feel the abandonment that's lurking underneath the surface. But if I got really more intimate with myself and held this abandonment and healed it, I wouldn't need to have these quote unquote controlling behaviors that we're not even all aware of because mm-hmm. I wouldn't have to keep you so close because I wouldn't be driven by fear. Does that make sense? And it's like the same is true for someone who is, let's say, very, very avoidant. I don't need to keep you so far away or there's usually a specialness wound underneath that is abandoned. Like they feel insecure and they're mm-hmm. going to find all these ways to feel insecure and they'll push you away. But underneath that, they're scared of actually being abandoned themselves, but they're not conscious of it. So it's, it's a, it's both. It's a mirroring of both. It just happens to be one is more conscious of being left and the other one's more conscious of being smothered or feeling like less than. And then, you know, they kind of play off of each other in different ways. And it's like, where is your level of consciousness? Where did this develop? And how can you embrace the subconscious fear and heal it with people who can actually help you heal it, which is people who can hold the space and connect the dots for you in those sensations and those harder experiences. Outside of parenting, can this also be developed from, say, like you had a ton of bullying as a kid and so you always felt like you weren't good enough and so that second you got someone in your life, you just really got attached to them. Like say you didn't have a lot of friends, you were bullied, you always felt like a misfit and then you meet this person and they're they're into like they like you and you just like anxiously want to attach to them because you fear like the past of people just being mean to you and abandoning you. There are different points in your life where you can have experiences that could lead to some form of like PTSD, if you want to say, or a trauma response. However, if you're secure, there's a good chance you would have rebound from that in a different way than if you had an insecure sense. But I'm not here to say that there can't be an experience in your life that shakes you to your core but your core is really developed early on. So how your core shakes is really contingent on those formative years because they're more connected to nervous system development than you think. Hmm. What about like, when I think of this, I think about the people who I've talked with some people before and they're like, I don't remember anything in my life until like seven or like eight or something. And like the things they do remember were those events of being bullied or whatever. Like they don't really remember like, well, yeah, my parents were good, but you don't really remember. So how do they know this stuff about like the baby? Like how, how, what research was done to know that those things with the parents caused that? That's such a great question. So seven or eight is actually when your left hemisphere develops. So you have more of an ego state and that's when you're, you know, you're coming up with a story in your head when you're in womb to about four really, and then left starts to come online, you're only storing sensations. So what we think of memory is we think of a picture in our head and we go back, blah, blah, blah. But actually it's the sensational embedded things that come up in our relationship. For example, when your partner doesn't text you back or when your partner ghosts you, if your gut falls to the floor, or if you have these extreme sensational experiences, that's actually stored memory. And people don't think of memory, implicit memory, we think of explicit memory, which is like, oh, I remember being in my bedroom and I remember this. No, actually, you have a felt sense of many, many memories that come to the surface every single day. We're just not actually, as a society, we're not really aware that sensation is memory as well. And that's why there's so much movement into somatic work and into the body and helping you understand that like, it might not make sense in the here and now, but if your body is kind of alarming off, there's a felt experience of a perceived threat. Even if there's not a real threat, your body is 
kind of through neuroception, um, kind of assessing that there's a threat here. And that's why I'm having anxiety that this person isn't texting me back. So this doesn't feel safe. I'm waiting for disconnection to happen. And disconnection is painful. Yeah. So, so you believe that this all starts in the womb? Yeah, we start to um, have cellular memory in womb. And, uh, you know, there's like, I could tell you a story of someone who had PTSD and tracing it all back. Um, her father was on, on the ship in Pearl Harbor. And it's a, it's a long story, but when her body was shaken up by a earthquake, it reminded it, her body woke up to when her dad was, they were bombed and her mom, her mom couldn't find her dad. And it was like, the fetus in her actually had a cellular memory from a from a from an earthquake in California that took her all the way back to this one because she had a very secure actually upbringing, but there was a trauma that actually happened when she was seven months old. I mean, seven months in womb. Wow, 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 wow! That just honestly, <laughs> this sounds weird, and this is very like kind of off topic. But I was watching the Jeffrey Dahmer um, documentary, and you know, you like Allison was saying, you didn't really see any like crazy trauma in his life. But when you think about when he was in the womb, and like uh-huh. you know, you see the mom was taking all those pills. She just seemed like you know she was going through a lot, and then he experienced all that like you know the parents leaving, no one really like whatever. He just secure. He was. I think really anxiously attached to the point of like when people tried to leave, remember how he would be like, don't go. And then got really weird about it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, go ahead. No, sorry. I was just going to follow up because it's interesting that you were thinking about that because I, I was thinking about how like the um, like right after, not the womb part, but when you were talking, Jessica, about the first like couple years of life and that's like, especially the first year or two, that's when, when a lot of times, um, women's like postpartum depression or anxiety is really, really heavy, like right after a child Mm -hmm. is born. And I don't think that, I think that's starting to come to light, but I can imagine, like, I am pretty sure my mom had postpartum depression. She doesn't really talk about it. I, I'm learning a little more as I get older and understanding, oh, wow, like, this is probably <laughs> what happened in, you know, early first two years of my life. She was very much dysregulated. And, um, and I think that that's something too. Like, I don't, you know, we know that, that, I don't know about Jeffrey Dahmer, but you know, his, his mom definitely struggled with that too. But, um, I wonder if that also kind of plays a part in it, you know, that if, if there's really like these postpartum depression or anxiety diagnosis for, for some women that, and, and, and dads too, you know, that can kind of connect to this, this type of anxious attachment. Like if that happens, maybe that's a little bit more severe. I don't know. Well, I actually share about that personally in my book. My mom, my mom struggled with anxiety and postpartum and was going through a separation. So she had a lot of anxiety that, you know, I took in and it's not her fault. She was going through a lot. And so we are living in the paradigm of sensing where we're like, imagine a baby doesn't have thoughts. They're literally sensing. So they're sensing. So if your parent is in fear or depressed, they're sensing that, they're picking up on that, and they're internalizing that, right? And so, yeah, every experience, and this isn't to say that parents have to be perfect. There's something called rupture and repair and meeting the baby where there is at. But those experiences need to be like 
safe for the most part and attuned and, you know, there needs to be a sense of safety in the parents and not every parent lives in a state of safety. We, a lot of people live in survival mode and they're not even aware that we're in survival mode and who can blame them. And the world is, is kind of structured that way. So it's so many layers. And I think when you're doing the work, it's about having compassion for the, this part of you that might be struggling when you're in relationships and, and certain alarms are going off and also eventually forming compassion for your parents. They were probably doing the best they could as well. And that comes when you heal, after you heal, that comes through the healing when you're out of the blaming. I'm so concerned about the COVID babies. Like I just have a lot of anxiety and sadness about, and it's not the parents' fault, you know, like in the beginning of it all, like it was like, we didn't know anything. And so I just, I even have a friend who uh, her baby was born like literally five months into uh, the pandemic. And so, you know, that baby was in the womb, those last couple of months and then the five months into the earth it was just like and, and I mean like even still to this day I know this one kid who he literally screams when his mom takes his mask off him because of the fear and so mm. I'm just so worried about that generation I just yeah. well you're so right I mean so there's been some research and I don't have all the research like on the top of my head around 9-11 babies and they um they suffer from more PTSD symptoms across the chart. And so there's also a couple other stories um, where babies born in like a, the middle of a war or during really challenging times, they have more challenges as their life unfolds because they were born in such a period of cortisol and stress and, and fear. And so that's their paradigm coming out is is real fear. And there's nothing a parent can do about that. We were all scared, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So right. just like, I think overly advocating and saying like, hey, you know, these kids, it's whether you're okay or not, therapy would just be a great idea to like get these kids into, you know, like just really advocating for that. I think it would be so important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just also, if you're listening, being so tender with yourself, like, cause we don't always know what we took in and it's really no one's fault, but you know, as you do the healing work, the sensational experiences in your body that come up and show up in your relational experiences are a flashlight in to where your nervous system is at and what really scares you and what you run away from and what you run towards. And there's sometimes you can know, you know what your subconscious wounds are, you know, am I scared of being alone? Am I unlovable? Um, am I not enough? Like if those resonate with you, you know that that's the story you put to a sensation. The sensation came first. Yeah. So yeah. going back to epigenetics and genetics. Um, so say a kid and another kid went through the same scenario with their parents can would the epigenetic genetics and the genetics come into play when if they choose avoidant or the uh, anxious attachment um so like epigenetics is more of a intergenerational thing where there's a gene like something on top of the gene that changes like if you're a holocaust survivor and and they they don't know what genes don't always get turned on and off so again you you could have you can have certain genes and you've put enough stressors on them then the genes get turned on and off. So it really depends on, it's like such a layered thing. It's not just like here are your genes or here's your developmental process or here are your primary caregivers. It's a combination of so many things in that environment and your makeup and how you start to see the world and experience the world and the amount of safety that you experience in the world 
that develops a more secure base. So what would cause a kid who like, say you like know they had like their baby life up to like probably seven was really, really rough and they're so secure. Like, how does that happen? You know, I know a couple of people who are pretty secure and I've looked at their, their families and My husband. I'm, <laughs> I'm like a little, I, you know, some people are born with a little bit more um, resilience, I guess. And okay. in some ways he might've gotten more than you think he got, or he got enough to kind of build the resilience and, and, or he's really well protected in terms of he knows how to function really well in the world and he's not in touch with maybe anything. You know what you said earlier, you know, some people don't remember. It's like, yeah, sometimes we don't access our memory for good reason because memory surfaces when we're ready to hold it and experience it hopefully and re-experience it and heal it. Sometimes memory doesn't service as a a protective part of our brain, keeping us kind of in a very functioning mode. So I don't know if that's true for him or not, but it's just could be so many things. I also would, I like that you just asked that because this is kind of a nice segue for you to kind of maybe help us gain some clarity on what secure attachment actually looks like. Because I think some of us could look at someone and be like, oh my gosh, they're so securely attached. Like, how do I get that? But in reality, like we don't know their whole story. Like we don't know, maybe they, you know, maybe there's things we don't know, but we look and we see that secure, you know, I'm doing air quotes right now. Um, And I'm just thinking even about myself. Like I, I, I want to be secure. I just feel like I don't even know what that would take or what that would look like. And of course, for myself, um, like by myself right now, yes, but also in a relationship, I do want to find, like, I want to feel secure. I really struggle with that in my last relationship. Um, But how, what, like, what can we do and what does it look like to kind of get to that place? I mean, that's literally what my whole book is about. It's called Earn Security. And it's not easy. I'm not, you know. So like if if I had anxiety as a protector, because that's really what anxiety is, and you lived there and I lived here in a house and there was snow and I shoveled a path in my brain from my house to your house and that anxiety was the path. That's the path I take. That is the protector. As you heal and you start to build neuroplasticity, and I'll talk a little bit more about what that means, you start to develop new pathways. It doesn't mean that anxiety goes away. It means that you develop more pathways in your brain and you have more what we call dual awareness when your alarm system is going off. Part of the healing um, that I kind of facilitate and have learned from interpersonal neurobiology is building an inner and outer secure community. So anxiously attached people and codependent people lack self-regulation because they didn't get a lot of co-regulation and that didn't build parasympathetic nervous system quite the same way. So part of the healing is being with more and more of your anxious parts in the presence of someone who can hold those parts with you Mm. because you can't always hold them yourself, especially if they're like infant feeling or young feeling. So it's about bringing them to safe people who are what we call in a ventral state. So in a safety in their nervous system who can help hold it, you can re-experience it and you can connect it back to possibly the original sensation or wound. The more and more you do that, the less and less your behaviors in life will be driven out of fear 
because you will be dealing with what you are essentially trying to avoid, if that makes sense. And so you'll feel a felt yeah. sense of safety when you lean into safe people, when you realize there are safe people, when you pick safe people to do the work with, and then you internalize those safe people. So like we internalize our parents and there's nothing that's great. We internalize a lot of people. And so when people say, oh, go love yourself, really what you need to do is access someone who was loving towards you, internalize that person. What would they say to me? How would it feel to have them in the room with me? So you can cultivate the felt experience of being loved. So then you can eventually use that ego state or that inner community is what I like to call it. And what I've been trained to help kind of hold the anxious little girl or boy in you that is terrified. And so if you can't do that with an inner community, you need to start with an outer community that is safe. Oh my gosh. Sorry. It's, I'm taking this all in. It's, it's, it's so hard to do. <laughs> like you, you're saying all that. And it's just such, it's so hard when you're in the moment of, or like you're in a relationship, especially I would say like kind of a newer relationship. I feel like that's something for me that was really hard. I mean, it, it was so great having a, a therapist who understood attachment theory and was helping me through those early stages of, of when I was with my ex. Um, but then it started actually, no, it, it was, it was all hard because he was very much an avoidant. Um, so I know from my own research and, and reading your book and just listening to my own, um, a podcast about attachment theory is that it's very common for like an anxiously attached person to be drawn to an avoidant attachment style, which what is that about? That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's multi-layered and um, very, very common. And we're often drawn to the lost parts of ourselves. And I would say, so attachment theory, you can find your label for sure, which I hate labels, but attachment is a combination of two people's energy and how their embedded patterns play out together. So you can have a secure person attached with someone who's really avoidant and they might show up a little bit anxious or vice versa, just not as anxious, right? And so when um, an anxious person is lively and vulnerable and you know has a lot of emotion and they see someone who's stoic and strong and independent... They're really both attracted to like parts of themselves that they haven't quite unlocked yet. Mm -hmm. And then when they experience those parts enough in the other, that also scares them. I, you know, like there's like a whole domino effect of, you know, that can happen with the anxious avoidant dance, which I compassionately unpack because it's very, very workable if people are conscious and getting yeah. people conscious of the nervous system. That's how I kind of go into like, okay, this person is running away because they're literally in fear. They're not leaving you and you are feeling left because literally that's where your wound is. And you start to understand the nervous system on a deeper level. You start to understand that your partner's not trying to hurt you. They're just in survival mode. And some anxious avoidant combinations are healable. If you have anxious attachment, you're gonna probably bump up into your patterns no matter what. It's whether or not who you couple with, can you work through the patterns in the relationship, not about always finding the perfect secure person that just your patterns are still going to play out. And it's whether or not you guys can play them out in a more conscious way. I, that's the best way I can kind of describe that. I, I just want to respond really quick because I that couldn't hit the nail on the head with that because when it came to me and my ex, 
I what ultimately kind of led to us not working out is because I had been on this like self-discovery journey for the last 10 to 15 years of my life and like really learning about myself and being conscious about my limiting beliefs and um you know where just learning about my caregivers and just you know on this journey of healing and he was not even he totally wants to be but he has like a little child i mean the time not like okay i don't like when people say i don't have the time there's always time to kind of work on yourself but still uh, there was a lot he had to just there there was a lot every day he just had to do as an adult responsible responsible father and everything before you know he was doing a lot of different things and he couldn't access that part of himself in the way i needed him to yeah and I- You know, I'm just learning that now that in my next relationship, I know I'm going to need to find someone who has already accessed that a little bit and has been able to to learn a little bit more about who he is and be vulnerable and understand, like have emotional awareness of things a little bit more, you know? Yeah. And there's some science and spirituality to the – we have an energetic blueprint and a frequency to us and you'll probably attract – someone who is a little bit um, more vulnerable because you can see more into yourself, you're likely to attract someone at that level of wounding and like healing that you're at. I mean, sometimes one person is a little ahead of the other person and that's how the relationship starts to evolve. Um, It's really hard when you're, you're with someone who sound, he sounds a little avoidant more in the left mode of doing who can't slow down and be in any kind of being because it's not safe for him. And at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. It's like, can I put down my survival drive and my responsibilities and slow down and be with these parts? Or is that too threatening for me because of external or internal protectors that keep me in survival mode? And so some people don't have the support or the felt sense of if I open up and be vulnerable, if I slow down, this will become harder. And a lot of people consciously or unconsciously avoid it for good reason. Yeah. I love that. I feel like Taylor, that's kind of like you and your husband have such a healthy dynamic as far as your husband, you know, is very secure and you're so, you've been working on your journey for so long of healing. And I don't know, I, I don't, not, you don't have to share too much, but I'm curious if you, if any of this re- resonates for you, as far as you and your husband, like you guys, I feel like have such a healthy dynamic with that. It's pretty interesting. I feel like I'm actually a bit avoidant. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like I am super independent that like when people get into my space, I almost get, I get anxious And like sometimes the thought of like having my own apartment and just like things where I want them and just like sometimes it can feel like the smothering, like you said, because he's so secure and like very loving and not like anxiously loving, but just like very like and sometimes I'm just like like with intimacy and like stuff. I'm just like, stay away. (laughs) So it's like um but but I feel like I'm I, with the work. I've I'm pretty secure. But but it's funny. Can you be a mixture of everything? Like some days you're you're yeah. one, the next day you're another. Yeah, I mean, I there's a lot of different. So usually you have like kind of a baseline. Do you run towards or do you run away? Which is, sounds like you run away when things you wanna you wanna back up. And you know, as someone who identifies as anxiously attached myself, who's earned definitely earned my security. I can say that. 
I have an avoidant protector that if, if I feel like I'm not getting in connection enough, I'll start to fantasize about like, where can else can I live? Where can I go? Where can I escape to? Because I don't feel safe and the connection isn't safe. And I try to run towards, I try to run towards, and I try to run towards. And if that connection isn't made, eventually you start to run away. You start to run away because that doesn't feel safe either. So like, that's kind of the definition of disorganized. But disorganized can come when you're with someone who's on one of the extremes and you can't get back into connection. So if you can't get back into safe connection, you have a protector that shows up. And for you, when you feel overwhelmed or maybe a little bit like someone's in your space, your protector is, I'm going to move over here. I'm going to back up a little. This is overwhelming for me. So I would say that's a hair more on the avoidance side and that your husband is not anxious because if you were with an anxious husband, he'd freak out when you back up five feet, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But he's not anxious at all. And so you're allowed that space. And eventually over years, you might not need that space anymore because he's not going to smother you. That's the, that's a sensational fear that lives in your body that isn't really accurate to your reality right now. So, you know, you can kind of work with that part of you and be like, well, he's not going to smother me. This is the the felt sense of this smothering is coming. So there might've been a primary caregiver that hovered you a little bit. Yes. <laughs> I love my mom so much. And I know that she, you know what I, like I know that she just wanted so much good for us that like she would just, it was a lot of helicoptering and I know it was from a place of fear and just like, she just never wanted us to fail. She never wanted something bad to to happen to us. And I think that's another thing we should talk about is like, I feel like some people can listen to this and then just get angry at their parents and be like, you did this to me and you blah, 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 blah. And that's not what the healing journey is about. When you learn about all this, when you dive into this, it's almost like finding a place of like, my parents were trying the best that they could and you don't know what generational trauma they had, but it ends with me. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I'll share a little bit. My dad um, is a little bit more avoidant or disconnected, so to speak, but his parents were Holocaust survivors. And so as I was healing unresolved pairs, I'm working with like my dad in my inner world and I'm starting to see his little boy and his wounded parts and maybe what he didn't get because his parents literally almost died in the Holocaust. So if you could go back and see your parents also are products of their environment, right? And yeah. so they're typically doing the best they can. And even though if you're in a lot of pain, it makes sense to have a little bit of frustration. And not all parents are doing the best they can, but most are, you know? And so your mom was living in a little bit of fear, but if the intention was good, she still impacted you. And so you can kind of live in the space of both are true. My parents' tension was good. They came from this environment and they also impact me in that way. And I need to deal with the impact. Right, right. Yeah. I'll tell you something that's that's helped me as far as um, with my mom was very, very anxious. I t- already said she struggled with some postpartum depression, anxiety when I was little, but, you know, always um, struggled with being okay around emotions and being vulnerable. So anytime a difficult discussion started happening, or I'm a very high, uh, highly sensitive person, um, I'd cry a lot. And I just, you know, especially past 15 years, just a lot of my work has been wanting to be vulnerable and openly express my emotions. And she's always, um, she always walks away. She can't deal with whatever is happening. She can't listen and stay there. 
Um, and that is always such a trigger for me. And I remember with anger or with like any any difficult emotion. No, no, no. Any. Like her walking away with anger that it's happening, or just like uh, like how does even, she walk away? I don't even know what the emotion is because she's so disconnected from them that huh. we never even met up again after that to talk about what happened. Like, like would see must- you crying and then just walk away. Like, no, like what was the facial expression? It was like? ver- very um, like reactive as far as like what's happening. Like it's almost a crisis that you're crying. Okay, okay. So yeah, something like she like, couldn't meet you in yeah. the sadness or in the it makes sense that you were wanted upset about it. Wanted to fix yeah. it. Something's wrong. What's going on? And also, and I would do it so much when I was younger. And I, you know, I'm just someone that just cries easily. Um, that it almost became like, okay, now what's wrong? Then it became like not a crisis. It was like, oh my gosh, dismissive. You know? Yeah. So yeah. So I, it's you know, it's very hard. And you know. I saw that a lot in my ex and started realizing that I basically have been dating my mom for the past 20 years, all different well, guys, not my dad, my mom, um, and trying, right? And they always say you try and date the person that you felt like you're trying to kind of like, um, like I was always trying to get my mom to like love that part of me. And like I, they say you kind of like try and fulfill that in your relationships if you hadn't get your needs met, not healthy, but I was doing that and I'm figuring this out. But one thing that's really helped me is through all the work that I've done, I've really started like detaching from my mom a little bit. And this might sound like for some people listening, like, what are you talking? What? Oh my gosh, that sounds horrible. But it's healthy for me and her right now because I can't change her. Like I can't make her walk, go to therapy or like do, you know, I can't change the way that she reacts to me. I can, especially when I try and talk to her about how she affects me, forget it. You know, like it's very, she doesn't want to hear about it. It's probably very personal for her. She doesn't want to feel like a bad mom. I totally get it. And she wasn't, she's amazing, but she was only given what she was given from her parents. Right. So I have so much compassion for her, but at the same time, I feel a lot of detachment and I had to set a lot of boundaries with her. Mm-hmm. And now I know that the needs that I have from her, I won't, I'm not, I won't ever be able to get from her that I really need. And so I found it within myself. I've sort of reparented myself. I There's people in my life I feel so grateful for that I go to with those big emotions that can handle that. Mm-hmm. Um and slowly over the years, I've been able to detach from that part of it. And so she triggers me a little bit sometimes, but not how it was like 10 years ago, where I would end up in three days of crying and we'd scream at each other and, oh my gosh, all this stuff. And so sometimes learning how to do that is, I feel like, one of the best strategies in those situations with like a caregiver, um, because a lot of times they're not really going to change a lot, you know? Yeah. And it sounds like – so it sounds like she – didn't deal with emotion, her own inner emotional experience so that when you had an emotional experience, she couldn't meet you where you were at. So she did dismissive things or couldn't handle it. And then you attracted, you, you might've attracted a lot of people, but when that behavior showed up in the relational space, it hit your trauma big time. Yes. And it sounds like yes. you're healing your trauma through reparenting and bringing those big emotions somewhere else. That if that shows up a little bit in your relational space moving forward, you're not going to have such a trauma reaction. The more you heal it, the less of the charge there will be around it. And so, yeah, I mean, yes, we pick people that are have positive and negative traits of our primary caregivers. That's what Amago believes, and I believe that to be true. 
But if you if your partner does 10 things and only three of them really bother you, it's a good chance those three things that really bother you have deeper roots mm. because they're touching something deeper within you. Yeah. Yeah. Um so, but that I, I yeah, I that's that's such a good point and I um you know, it's just all such a learning process. It's and it's mm-hmm. it's just so it's just something to in like your like romantic relationships that touch something. And I mean, if you think about it, those are the most intimate relationships you have besides your parents, right? Are romantic yeah. relationships. Yeah. Those bonds are just so different than other ones. And so, um, so I know, I know kind of we're, we're coming up on time, but I'd love for you to share before we go, just some type of like nervous system regulation tips or self-regulation tips when anyone listening is feeling like it, they're in a relationship right now, or maybe they're starting to date, or even if they're not in a relationship, but what what kinds of strategies um, are helpful to kind of regulate the nervous system when when those triggers come up? Well, if they're really, really, really early wounding, co-regulation is the best. So having like three friends that you can call where you see their nervous system, you see their face and they're with you and they're not listening to the story. They're not fixing you. They're Mm -hmm. just holding the emotional experience with you. You might need co-regulation. Another thing is if you're really getting into the science of it. So when your automatic nervous system is going off, your body is preparing for a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Your respiratory system is the one system you still have control over. So if you extend your exhales, and you really can focus on breathing and get out of the story, you can trick your brain back into a state of safety. Hmm. Okay. I love that. And that's, um, that, you know, that, that tip I would say for me has been like one of the most helpful parts, which is why I wrote, I basically wrote the anxiety healers guide, my book, um, because it's like full of just hundreds of, you know, uh, nervous system regulation tools and tips that I've used on myself when I was within my last relationship that really helped me um, just move, move through my days. Um, And I think it's, it is a practice. Like you were talking about like neuroplasticity, right? Like that essentially is the more you practice something, the more it just becomes habit, right? And you start really just um, almost like, like consciously doing it, but then also just knowing that you have these tools to use just automatically instead of having to say, oh my gosh, I forgot. Like I used to be like, oh my God, I forgot. That helped me before. I used to not remember it until like hours later. Now I now I know what my toolkit is. I have a whole healing toolkit and whatever you know, I'm going through at those certain moments, I have the support system as part of my toolkit. You know, with my breathing, breath work is part of it. Um, you know, all the supplements I take are part of it. My sleep hygiene is part of it. So anything I need, it's like, you know, I needed to do my tapping the other day, my EFT tapping. That was something that helps when I'm certain, triggered one way. And then the other day I was triggered another way and my progressive muscle relaxation is what actually like really helped calm me. So I think creating the toolkit is so helpful for people and just uh-huh. regulating their nervous system. Um And that's just going to be, I know, especially for people that are in relationships where they are feeling like anxiously attached, like making those things a practice every single day too. Don't just do these things when you're like feeling highly anxious. It's good to have the the tools then, 
but like make it a daily practice for some of these things for sure. Um, gosh, this was so awesome. Taylor, do you yeah. have anything else? No, no. I really love talking to you. You're you're awesome. And I'm so proud of you and your journey too. I think that's awesome that we can go through things in life and on the other end is something beautiful and we get to share that with other people and then help change other people's lives. I truly believe that's why we go through things sometimes. So that's really amazing what you're doing. Thank you so much, you guys are awesome as well and so vulnerable and ask such great questions. And I'm just happy to be here with you guys and getting this information out there and helping more people because a lot of people are suffering and with the right tools and, you know, the right support, we can all work through it. And that's, it's, there's no avoiding it. We got to work through it. So, but we need these, this information and podcasts like this and people like you are really just helping it get broadcasted. Hmm. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Okay. So tell everyone where they can follow you and buy your book and all that. Yeah. So you can follow me at Jessica Baum, LMHC. That stands for Licensed Mental Health Counselor. That's on Instagram. And if you just put Jessica Baum in, you're going to see my book, but it's called Anxiously Attached, Becoming More Secure in Life and Love. I love, I love my book. It's chock full of so much information. I also give somatic meditations along with it. Um, it's just been, it's been wonderful and it's everywhere. It's in 10 countries. It's on Amazon. It's in many languages. Um, so you can just, you can get it at Barnes and Noble and it's a lot, some indie shops and, you know, of course online. And we'll put the link in the show notes too, for Thank anyone so who, who wants to buy it. Of course. It's amazing. Like it's amazing. Thank I, you. I love it. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having um, me. Yes. And everyone go follow. And we hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. We love you all. If you're enjoying um, the Anxiety Chicks, please leave us a five-star review. We would love it. Um, and we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.